Father, thank you for giving us your word. Uh, We live in a culture, we live in a time in which all sorts of different voices are telling us different things and people are fighting for different narratives so that one narrative is believed over another narrative. How thankful we are that you have spoken and when you speak, it is absolutely rock solid, it is true, it is sure, it is uh, without uh, any doubt. And so we pray that as we look through your word and especially as we listen to these old teachers, the Westminster divines who are teaching us through the catechism, may we better understand what it is that you've told us in your word. We're thankful that it's not simply a narrative, a story, but it is in fact uh, what is and what has happened and what is going to happen. And that gives us great confidence by which to live. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our look into the Westminster Shorter Catechism today. We're moving into question 27. Just a uh, heads up. As you guys know, we are going to do our um, coffee and questions starting in June. As you know, we wrap up Sunday school in the month of May. So we have this week and next week. And so we're going to do this question and next week the following question. Both go together, so that should be a nice breaking off point uh, for us. So that means we've got to actually, get, actually have to get through this question today. So let's see if we can, uh, can do that. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at our catechisms. I know most of you have it memorized, but for those who still want to uh, double-check yourselves, um, back, of the bull, uh, back of the hymnal somewhere around, what, 870-ish? 871. We're looking at question 27. Question 27. I'm going to ask one of you all to read the question and, and the corresponding answer. Also, we have a lot of Bible stuff going on today. So uh, break out your Bibles. We're going to be looking at a bunch of verses. But does anybody have question 27? Maybe you can read it along with the answer. Beth, you look like you're ready to go. Can I ask you to maybe read it? Thank you. All right, thank you so much. Okay, so today we're going to be dealing with Christ's humiliation And what it does is it sets us up then next week for Christ's exaltation. And when you hear those words, you begin to understand that the word humiliation is not being used here as an embarrassing somebody. You know, how was Christ embarrassed? Oh, I can't believe I rode, you know, wore the wrong color toga to the wedding party at Canaan. It was Cana. It was supposed to be, you know. No, no, we're not talking about that. We're contrasting this idea of Jesus who is the second person of the Trinity, that is God taking on human form. And in the process of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, becoming a human being and his life, a life of suffering and and ultimately of a substitutionary death, that is called his humiliation, that whole process where the God who who lived in glory all of a sudden lives in our misery. And then there is the exaltation which is his being ascended into heaven, seated once again at the right hand of the Father, and he is now king over the universe, that kind of thing. Now you might say, and we'll talk about this more next week, wait a minute, Jesus becomes king of the universe when he's ascended? Wasn't he always king? In his divine nature, he never ceased to be sovereign God over all things. But as a human being, as a human being, there is this exaltation, you know, that uh, he's resurrected and he's exalted. And as somebody once put, and we'll talk more about this next week, obviously, but as someone once said, the dust of Adam now sits on the throne of heaven. It's an amazing thing. So in order for us to get our minds wrapped up around this, this question actually sums up things we've already seen. So some of this will be um, not new, but it summarizes it all in, in one question that lets us see a pretty interesting flow. So let's get started, if you will. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It's a passage we've looked at before, and here we are looking at it once again. Philippians 2, 5. And, um, you know, we've talked about this passage in the past, and it's really part of a broader passage in which Paul is calling us to learn to love one another, forgive one another, uh, care for others, to put others above ourselves and so on. And he uses Jesus as an example of it. But this little section is often isolated and we're about to do the very thing I've accused others of doing, which is just taking verses five through 11 out and just looking at it out of context. But I've also always said, 
Can it serve that purpose of a Christological purpose of teaching us about Jesus? Yes, it can. And just as long as we don't think that's the only reason Paul included it here, it doesn't mean that we can't use it. So let's go ahead and read that. If somebody will read verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. All right, thank you very much. So keep your fingers on, uh, or a little bookmark or something on, in that text. We're going to uh, come back to it. Uh, I'm interested, what translation were you reading from? That's the ESV. I'm reading from the ESV too. Um, <laughs> very interesting that it says in verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And yours said, but emptied himself. Is that a newer Bible? Is that the Pew Bible? Is that a, maybe you, while we're talking, maybe one of you can flip to the beginning and tell me if that's a 2011. The uh, ESV was um, published in 2001, revised in 2007, uh, and then the worst one was the 2016. Uh, they, they really did something dumb in 2016. Uh, these were all good revisions, um, and in 2016, they said this was going to be the final one, that it would be perfected, uh, which is a dumb thing to say, um, I think because they were thinking that the next one would be called the, the revised English Standard Version or something. We need another revised out there. Um, instead of just doing what the King James did, because your King James is not the same King James of 1611. It was revised every few years. The one that you, most people think of is actually from the mid-1700s, uh, 1760-something. So, they, yeah, they stopped it there, uh, at least so far. They got so much pushback, and then they rescinded and said, yeah, okay, we might update it, which is not a bad thing. They made a lot of good changes here, but they made one really bad change um, Let's not answer that question because you didn't ask it, but I'm sure you will during coffee and questions. And then we'll talk about the really bad change um, and why it happened and what happens when you let... Well, how about if I just uh, leave that for coffee and questions? Okay, but that's actually very interesting that they say, but he emptied himself. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. But what you see in that text as you look at it is what? This language, right did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being, formed, uh, being, found, uh, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What, do you, what does it say? He humbled himself. There's your humiliation. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. There's your exaltation. So when the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism writers talk about his humiliation and his exaltation, they didn't make up the terms. They got it straight from here. And you can see the, the incarnation is the humiliation part. And as he then ascends, well, it's still the incarnation, but the moment of incarnation, he's becoming human and so on. And then uh, post-resurrection is his exaltation. So what we want to do is take apart the different parts of our catechism question and see that humiliation laid out for us. Let's take a look here. Uh, how do I want to do that? The different aspects of it. Then we're going to go ahead and look up um, some of these. Not some. I'm going to look up every one of them. So the first thing it tells us Grab the one black that didn't work. Okay. Am I going to make it? There we go. Okay, so what do we have here? He enters human nature. That's the first one. Do we have evidence of that? Well, quite a bit, right? Um, let's take a look at something as simple as Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just, um, if you will, uh, read that for you. Actually, you know what? No, 
No, no, no. That's, uh, let's hold that one for a moment. Uh, I think most of you will agree that Jesus was born. <laughs> uh, just because we have a number of birth narratives, right? I'm going to leave the Luke uh, passage for the second thing that we want to look at. Uh, or, you know, uh, you know what? We'll read Luke 2, 7a. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Let's just stop there. Full stop. So Jesus is born. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus enters into human nature? How is that part of his humiliation? It's his taking on human nature that is, is the question here. Um, C.S. Lewis once compared it this way. He said, it's like a shepherd becoming a lamb in order to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the flock. It's the idea of a lowering. And you might say, well, you mean lowering. Well, because the very fact that he becomes a human being, uh, as we read about in the Philippians 2 passage, is humiliating. You are the God of glory. It's not like so much a, a king becoming a pauper. Uh, it's, it's not even that, because that's just a change in circumstances and so on. We're talking about his taking on a finite nature. So you're talking about God who is infinite and so on, all of a sudden having to enter into this world and deal with all the different things that we deal with in this world. So just the very fact of his uh, becoming a human being, the, the, the infinite distance that exists between God and any creation, any bit of creation, uh, is part of that humiliation. Does that make sense? So just without even, had, had he done this before the fall, it still would qualify, is what I'm saying. Because just by his entering into creation, uh, we sometimes see God on a spectrum. And what I mean by that is like the scale, you know, of um, I remember when I was uh, uh, in school uh, years ago, and, and this is wrong, I'm not agreeing with it, uh, at least not to the extent in which it was presented, but in my biology text, it would talk about how do we classify the idea of taxonomy in biology? How do we classify? And one of the ways in which we classify different things and organisms is by their complexity. And so it started with things like a rock, and it worked its way up, you know, multi-celled, Single-celled, multi-celled organisms on up to, you know, different. And then how, what's the difference between a man and a monkey? Well, not a whole lot in terms of complexity and so on. And the whole idea was, you know, gearing us towards evolution and so on. Now, there is some truth to that, obviously. There is a uh, difference in complexity between uh, a mineral and between, let's say, the functions of a human brain. There's no doubt about that. Obviously, I wouldn't buy into the evolution thing. Again, if you wonder why, coffee and questions coming soon to a theater near you. But uh, for now, the point simply being is sometimes we think of God as being infinitely more complex, which is true, and, and, and so on. But we put him on the sort of same scale, and we kind of just see ourselves traveling along. And, and then we have, you know, in the psalm, you're a little lower than the angels. That could also mean a little lower than God. We're not quite sure how it's translated in Hebrews in Hebrew, but uh, the point simply being is there's no scale for God. And when we talk about him being infinitely more complex, that very word infinitely means the scale's already gone. So that's, if we can kind of sort of grab our head around what I'm getting at there, just his becoming human is part of that humiliation because he enters into the scale. Does that make sense? You've perhaps heard me say in the past that there's nothing that's hard for God. Most of you would agree with that. But it also means there's nothing easy for God. What? What? Because for God, it just simply is. See, um, if you ever read the Tao Te Ching, you guys know about that? Taoism, Chinese philosophy, right? Chapter two of the Tao, um, it's always good to understand what pagan philosophers write because it helps us to understand uh, where the human mind can go outside of revelation. And, in the, and, it, and the short answer is it never gets to where it needs to get to. So, but uh, in the Tao Te Ching on chapter two, it hits it right on the head when it says that the only reason we understand ugliness is because we have a standard of beauty. We know what short is because we also understand what long is. That, that those terms mean nothing without the other. And, it's, and that's actually absolutely true. You know, there is no such thing as saying that's beautiful unless you can compare it to something and say that's not so beautiful. And, 
and so on and what have you. So you know, the, the, the same thing applies here. Hard and easy only make sense together. You can never just say something is hard without having a conception of what's easy, if that makes sense. But when you get to God, all that goes out the window because that's all part of finitude. It's all part of being in creation. Does that blow your mind? So God is just completely off the charts is what I'm trying to get at. So his entering human nature immediately puts him on the chart and that alone is uh, just part of that humiliation that God um, undertook on our behalf, right? Okay, what is the second thing that we want to say? What's the language of the catechism I'm going to use? It's words, not my words. Um, In a low condition. Okay. So once we understand that just becoming human is is part of the problem, um, we might imagine, okay, well then, he's going to come as an emperor ruling over the, you know, the world with thousands and thousands of uh, you know, angel armies and physical armies and wealth and all this. But now we go to our Luke 2, 7 passage and read it in full. And she, Mary, brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, right? So there we get the idea that when he became a human being, uh, he had no wealth, he had no social standing among men, uh, he was poor, uh, his parents were poor, uh, he lived in uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, he lived you know, in a corner, uh, it's kind, of like, kind of like the armpit of the Roman Empire, uh, you know, this wasn't a, anybody who got assigned, any Roman who got assigned to the Roman Empire would be like, it's like getting sent to Minot, North Dakota or something in the military, that kind of thing. Or, or just New Jersey and period, if you know where, okay, for all those who might understand that. So, the, you know, it's like being just relegated to a backwater. So Jesus is in this, literally, this backwater. Um, nobody really cares about it. It's a dirty, scringy little place. Uh, and, it's, and it's not during a time even you know of Israel's prominence. This is not during the days of David or of Solomon, or if you want to even shoot for when the divided kingdom was in the northern kingdom, the one called Israel, the one that was always um, uh, heretical, always always in rebellion against God. But you might think of the times of Omri and Ahab. Uh, we think of Ahab and Jezebel as being um, you know terribly um, bad people. They were. But during their time, Israel prospered, at least maybe not as much as during the times of Solomon, but relatively speaking. This is not what Jesus is born into. He's born into very, very difficult times in which the, uh, the Jews are a subjugated people. They are not quite slaves like they were in Egypt, but they are, are, are a conquered people, uh, an occupied nation. So again, this is what um, Jesus is stepping into just to, again, give us that idea. And then, and then not even as a, uh, a prince or whatever, but as um, you know, the poorest of the poor. All right, questions on any of this? I'm just gonna keep going. Those were all the easy ones. I think most of us uh, get those. Now, the next thing it says, made under the law, let me put that as submitting to the law. Somebody take a look at Galatians 4.4. 4. You may have to read a little bit before or after. It's a squeaky little thing, isn't it? Galatians 4.4. 4. Let's kind of get there and see what we got. That's the one. Would you go ahead and, uh, and, and read that, uh, 4 and 5? Yeah, that's good enough. Um, He was born under the law. So this is an amazing uh, statement because I'm going to say something that perhaps you had not thought of, but God 
is the giver of the law. More than the giver, he's not just a conduit. Somebody gave it to him and he gives it to us. But the maker of, of the law, right? He's the author, I guess is the right word. The author of law, the giver of law. But God himself is not subject to law. You ever thought about that? Right? So the law tells us how to be good. That's essentially what it does. And how not to be evil. That's the simplest of forms. That's what it's saying. So it tells us to not kill. It tells us, especially in terms of murder. It tells us to not steal, for example. Is God bound by those laws? Yes, no, no, okay. Does that mean that God can steal when he wants? Uh, Okay, I'm seeing... It it, kind of is. Some of you are saying he can't steal as in it's not in his nature to steal. So he'll resist doing it. Let me me get Jack in the back. uh, Sorry, Doug. I I, want to get our young people. Yes. (laughs) That's where Doug was going. I knew that would be the case. That's the point. He can't steal in the sense that there's nothing for him to take that doesn't belong to him. Uh, murder, uh, that's the unlawful taking of, of human life. It's our lives are, are his for him to do what he pleases with. You see, first commandment of, uh, of having no other God, he is that God. So on one, in one level, you, you just have to say they don't apply to him logically. They don't apply to him, the laws right? Uh, they just simply don't, don't fit from that perspective. The other is that when you talk about is he, is he subject to the law, the other aspect of that is if he were subject to it, somebody would have had to have defined those laws for him to be subject to it. But God, by his very nature, because he is good, defines what is good. In other words, what is good is good because it is God, or comes from God, or is defined by God. Does that make sense? So in that regard, he's not subject even to the idea of law. So the fact that then Jesus in Galatians 4, 4 submits himself to the law is just a further part of that so-called humiliation. Uh, here, you know, like I said, he's the giver of the law. He is above that law, and yet he makes himself subject to it. That means that as a human being, remember, he is our substitute. He's going to do everything that you and I are supposed to do as human beings. So he subjects himself to the law, as Galatians 4.4 4 says, purposefully. And that means he has to keep all the commandments perfectly. All the duties that he's supposed to have towards God, all those duties that we're supposed to have towards other people, he did all of that. Also, by subjecting himself under the law, perhaps we haven't thought about this, he automatically subjects himself to temptation. Ah, ah. You can't tempt God because, again, you have nothing to offer God to tempt him, right? You know, hey, if you do this, you can have that. As James says, all our sin ultimately flows from wanting something that we don't have. But God's like, <laughs> I have it all. And if I don't have it, I'll will it into being, you know, if I wanted it, that kind of thing. So there's, there's no tempting God. But once he becomes a human being and he subjects himself to the law, he puts himself in a position where he can be tempted as a human being. This is the, why we needed to establish that Jesus is one person, but with these two natures. And he's fully human. And that man part can be indeed tempted. Remember, Paul says that there where there is no law, there's no sin, right? So there's no law that says, so if we say it, there's a law now that says you can have this bread, but you cannot have this bread. You can have this, but you cannot have that. But if that law has never been explained to you or even ever put out there, ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? That, but if, if it's never even been made a law, you can take either one of these two different breads. It makes no difference. 
But once the law is in place, you can have this one, you cannot have that one. Now there's a temptation to have this one, the one that's forbidden. Does that make sense? So in becoming human, Jesus not only, and subjecting himself to the law, he subjects himself to temptation. And it may be said, I think G.I. Williamson is right when he says that it was a terribly difficult thing for him. Difficult in the sense that no man has ever been tempted more than Jesus. And you've heard me talk about this in other settings. I remember when we had J.T. Bora here, who was an elder that served with us before he moved to uh, Austin, and he would teach the newcomer's class. He would ask the question, um, and he would say, who's more tempted by a pretty woman, Bill Clinton or Billy Graham? And what's the answer? But who's more tempted? Okay, most people will usually say, because I'm not, I heard something in the back, but I didn't make it out. Who, who, who said what? Billy Graham, okay, you know, that's, yeah, you guys are smart. Most people would say, you know, if I got a microphone walking down the street and asking, well, Bill Clinton, right? Um, because we just kind of think he's the womanizer, so he's going to be the one who's going to um, be more tempted by the girl, whereas Billy Graham is holy and wonderful and all that, and he's going to not be tempted, but it's not the case. Bill, Bill Clinton is not tempted very much. It just takes a little bit of temptation, and he gives in. I mean, no, it's true, right? And you see that in your own life in the areas in which you immediately give in, you know, anger or whatever, you know, gossip, oh, juicy story, I can't help, oh, there I am when I told everybody, you know, that kind of thing, whatever the case may be. But Billy Graham resists, and as he resists, the temptation gets ratcheted up and up, and he has to resist more and more. That's why Jesus, like the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, was maximal, more than anything that you and I will ever face. So it's something to understand what it means when we talk about submitting to the law. Hope that gives you a greater appreciation of what it means for that. Okay, let's take a look at the next uh, point that we want to say. The person who says that um, without realizing it has committed heresy. Yeah, I mean, that's, just, that's essentially conflating the two natures of Jesus. And so this is why we make such a big deal. Look, can you be saved without understanding that? There have been tons of people who have not gone through Sunday school or theology seminars or seminary and have understood that their only hope is in Jesus, even if they don't understand perfectly. So I'm not going to be one of those guys that says, you know, unless you can walk around with the Westminster Shorter Catechism inscribed on your chest, you know, as a tattoo or something, you're not going to make it into heaven. Um, I literally, I've heard somebody very famous, I will not mention his name because I don't want to dishonor all the good that he did, but he was once asked uh, in my hearing, um, do you expect John Wesley to be in heaven? And he didn't bat an eyelash. No, because he was an Arminian. And all I'm going to say, exactly, I'm going to say, please, please. You know, there's a lot of our fellow brothers and sisters who are Arminians and dispensationalists and all these terms. They love Jesus. More importantly, Jesus loves them. And, um, and so J.I. Packer once spoke about this. And he says, too often we think we're saved by notional correctness. Notional correctness, what you, you know, what you, those notions you have in your head, what you know. Obviously, you have to know something. Um, you know, and obviously, um, uh, I'm not trying to say that it's all an emotional thing, far from it. But I think we have to be careful. But all that said, yes, we do insist on understanding that Jesus is fully human and fully God, and neither one of those has surrendered. For us to argue that he could resist the temptation because he's fully God completely discounts his humanity. It also then discounts everything in the book of Hebrews because the whole book of Hebrews is built on the idea that this man, and see, we as evangelicals have become ashamed to say this man because we've been beaten down by the modernists, today we call them the liberals in theology, starting about over 100 years ago, 1910s. At least that's when it made it into church. It actually started in the 1870s in the schools. And we've been beaten down that Jesus is only a man. And we have rightly resisted that and emphasized that he is fully God. But sometimes we do so at the expense of recognizing fully human. Just like uh, sometimes in our resistance to our Roman Catholic friends with their exaltation of Mary and making her co-redemptrix and all this, we forget that she uh, is and enjoys a very special position 
in the same way that Abraham and Moses does, for example, that she should be mentioned in the same breath as, as these others, all with flaws, all in need of salvation, all in need of, right? But still in that boat and not just kind of treat her as some, oh, just some 14-year-old girl that all she was was a womb. No. Blessed are you amongst women. There's something about this young girl, her faith, her devotion. Okay, yeah, I'm getting far afield. But that's the point I'm trying to get at is the humanity of Jesus cannot be ignored just because it's been despised or belittled by, by others. And Jesus' ability or the reality of his temptation sits under that category, uh, I'm sorry, that category, because he became a human being. Okay, suffering the miseries of this life, what does that mean? Um, Isaiah 53, 4. He has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs, right? Everything that he experienced. Uh, we think about he experienced hunger. He experienced sorrow. Uh, the death of Lazarus hurt him. He cried. He experienced poverty. He knew what it was to be treated unjustly. He was despised by people, ridiculed. He had been humiliated. Now I'm using the word humiliated the way it's more popularly used. Uh, you know, dragged naked literally in the streets for his crucifixion. Uh, he knows what it's like to be physically hurt and assaulted. Uh, he knows what it's like to be uh, betrayed. You know, all these different things that we, we go through in life and we sit there and say, it's so unfair, it's so unjust, right? Um, Jesus knew that. He had gone through all of those uh, different things. So everything that human beings experience, every deprivation, every uh, aspect of living in a fallen world other than being subject to sin. And that's why Hebrews makes such a big point about that. That he, Hebrews, that he had gone through that, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, had gone through that in every way except without sin. It's the one distinction that he has. Okay, that makes sense? All good there. Let's move to the next one. So we can just put suffering, the wrath of God, as part of what theologians uh, call the active uh, uh, obedience of Christ. It's not the best term. Um, what we're going to see after is called the passive obedience of Christ. When we think of passive, it means you just kind of lay there and do nothing. And referring to God pouring out his wrath. And that's the idea is that he absorbs the wrath. That's the passive part. Still, there's an, it's not like Jesus just kind of, oh yeah, I'll do whatever. He actively went to the cross. He chose that position. So it's not the best term. But the act of obedience means all this is his becoming a human in every way like we were. And still perfectly obeying. That becomes part of our record. When we are justified, when we are reckoned righteous, when we are given the record of merit that Jesus has, it includes his dealing with all these things always in the right way. In other words, perfectly keeping God's law. So it includes all that. Uh, the passive obedience is what we're going to enter into now, which is uh, is experiencing the wrath of God. So this is an important point. So Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cries that out on the cross, he is using, of course, biblical language to point his hearers, those who are literally listening to him, uh, back to that psalm so that we would understand um, what it was that was happening. Because if you were to look, would you see, you know, some, you know, red wrath descending on him? No, I mean, you just see a guy dying a criminal's death. And there's another guy right next to him and another guy right next to him. And he would look no different, uh, which is something that we see again and again, that Jesus uh, didn't seem any different from anybody else. Right? It looked like, you know, you and me. Right? He, he wasn't six foot four with Hollywood, you know, features and, and striking blue eyes so that when he looked at you, he pierced your soul. And he had such a gentle smile. You know, like, he's not Fabio. That's, that's not the 90s. You guys don't know what Fabio is. Some of you, so I hope the ladies don't say yes. Um, but look that up on the internet. I think the internet will tell you who Fabio is. 
Is, and if some of you can think of a more contemporary, help me, because I don't know who that latest contemporary person would be. But, you know, he, that's not the point. That's not who Jesus is. He looks just like everybody else. He blends right in. So you look on there and you think, whatever, some dude dying. There's no doubt that there were some supernatural things going on, things getting darkened and so on, all that. But in and of himself, looking at Jesus, that's what, a, you know, that's what, he, uh, what he looked like. So this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is letting us know that something is happening that goes beyond what you just see externally. And that is that God is pouring upon him all the full consequences of sin. Now, Galatians tells us, uh, actually all throughout, you can just see it again and again through all of Paul's writings. Uh, He was sinless, so he didn't deserve that, right? When we talk about God, uh, about Jesus suffering, maybe go back to here, the suffering, the miseries of life, we have to understand that the miseries that you and I go through we deserve. Now, somebody might do something unjust to you, and you might say, I didn't deserve that. And that's technically true, right? Uh, you didn't deserve to have somebody, um, you know, break into your car in the wee hours of the morning and, and, you know, steal your, what do they steal around here? Not radios, but tools, or your catalytic converter, which seems to be happening a lot now, right? Um, you didn't deserve that in one sense, technically. And if you were to go to before the courts, well, in the old days, I'd say they would be guilty, and you, but you probably now would be fined if we're not letting that person have your catalytic converter. But that's besides the point. Um, you get the idea that I'm getting at here. You did not deserve that. The courts would recognize that. and you, you know. But in the grand scheme of things, everything that happens in our life is because we deserve it. It's just part of a bigger picture of our suffering, right? If that makes sense. Jesus did not deserve anything. If he just woke up in the morning and the only suffering he ever experienced in all of um, his years was stubbing his toe. That would be more than Jesus deserved. Does that make sense? And that suffering would have an infinite aspect to it, which um, is a little hard to explain, but an infinite nature, something like that takes on uh, that, um, um, that level. So when God pours out his wrath on him, and the reason I'm getting at that is because it tells us that from noon till 3 p.m., three hours. You might say, well, human beings are going to suffer you know, for, for uh, eternity in hell. Why does he only suffer for three hours? How is that going to, to amount to or, or equate the, the full amount that we deserve? How does he pay in three hours an, eternal, an eternity of suffering? Does that make sense? See, it's already 10 o'clock. So let me just give you the very short answer. And it's, it has to do with this toe-stubbing episode. If God doesn't deserve even a fraction, now he's getting his maximum amount. If I say that even his toe-stubbing is infinite in nature, it has to do with the infinite nature of his own being. Uh, Let me give you an analogy that's been put out there. And it's like all things, an analogy is not perfect, but it can help you set up. If you tell me, um, I'm going to pick on you, Matt, because I always like to pick on you. Um, So... Matt makes it so easy. But if I go to Matt and I say, I'm going to kill you, Matt. Oh, I'm going to kill you. Okay, you know, maybe you can go to the police and, you know, they can, like, who's this guy, John, who wants to kill you? Okay, maybe, you know, you guys talk it out or whatever. Now, if I say that same thing to Joe Biden, what happens? I mean, I mean if, I, if I type that, and, and you know they're listening to us, so if I, if I, you probably can hear me right now. It's an example. But, you know, I say, I'm going to kill Joe Biden. And before you know it, oh, they don't even knock anymore. Swat! Are you John Canales? I hope you are because we just shot you dead. Okay, right? So why? Because there's a difference, maybe not in person, ontologically. Remember, ontologically means in our substance we're the same. We're both human beings. Um, and, uh, but in terms of office, let's put it that way. One is just a private citizen. The other one is president of the United States, leader of the free world, and so on, right? So you can see the, the scale. That's what's happening here. When we suffer, when God suffers, because of his infinite nature that Jesus has, his absorbing that wrath takes on infinite value, if that makes sense. A, a, a crime against Jesus 
right? When I sin, my sin becomes infinite in nature, even if it's just one. Because I, if I sin against you, uh, that's bad. But ultimately, all sin is against God, and it becomes infinite in nature because he does not deserve even the smallest bit of, of, uh, of, of rebellion, that kind of thing. Same thing with his suffering. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there just because of our time. But that's the point here that's so important to pick up on is he experiences the fullness of that wrath, the same uh, um, you know, wrath that will come on Judgment Day, just so that we understand that. Right, Galatians 3.3 3 says that he was made a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Um, so the fullness of that wrath came on him. Okay, very quickly, just because we're just about out of time. Uh, the next one is his death. Am I correct? Uh, I'm going to combine these, buried and under the power of death. And this is an important point. I'm going to put, not just that he died, but under the power of death. Now, I want to be a little sensitive here. We just recently had the passing of our dear brother, Jim Thacker. And I want to be careful when we think about folks that we love and so on. Because, you know, we give, rightly so, encouragement. We tell people, when you, you know, as a believer, and you die, and you pass immediately into glory, and you're with our Lord, and you experience uh, his, his, the blessedness of his presence. All that is true. This doesn't take anything away from it. But I want you to understand that death itself is the most unnatural thing in the universe. It is not part of the circle of life, despite whatever you heard in The Lion King uh, and that kind of thing. Disney actually, they, somebody should do a study. Disney has horrible theology. And that's before they went woke. I'm just telling you, you know, when they were still, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't put my kid in front of a 1973 Robin Hood you know, movie, that's fine. But there's a lot of really crazy, wacky stuff in Disney, even at its best. And, um, you know, The Lion King, the circle of life, and all that, the idea that death is just part of that cycle. And it's not. Death is not a part of life. It's not a part of nature. It is the most unnatural thing. It's an introduction into the world because of sin. So it's everything that is wrong with the world. And that is why when we talk about the restoration of all things, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, what is the biggest enemy, it says, the greatest enemy? Again and again, and talking about defeating the great enemy of... Now, sin is the cause of death, so I heard somebody say sin. That's because Jesus is pretty smart. You know, when somebody goes out there to fix you know, something that's broken, I can look out there and I see a tree that's diseased. What am I going to do? There is no tree that's diseased, just an example. But if I go out there, you know... I'm limited in my, you know, I'm not too smart about trees. So I go in there, oh, yeah, that branch looks bad. I lop off the branch. But if I solve the problem, no, it keeps growing another bad branch because there's something wrong with the tree. So an arborist knows, and he goes right to the, quote-unquote, pun intended, root of the problem. That's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't sit there and waste time. You know, what we need is this political solution. What we need is, you know, that policy. No, he says, no, look, the reason that there's, this and the reason that there's this and the reason there's this is because of sin so i'm going to go straight for sin and that's what he deals with on the cross he deals with our sin so sin is the ultimate cause but the ultimate consequence of sin is death and death in one sense like i said it's redeemed by christ in that regard but in itself death is a horrible thing because it is the end of existence as we know it we were we were we do not despite all the garbage that's out there and i mean it's in everything you ever watch that? Is it Patrick Swayze, I think? Is he the one who did some movie called Ghost? Everybody loved that. Oh, I saw it. You know, my, my ghost buddy kissing me or whatever. I don't know. I didn't watch the movie. But I know it's just garbage. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, all these ideas that what happens is that when you die, you're liberated from your body. That's straight thinking from Plato. Plato said that. It's platonic thinking. It's wrong. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, so what we have to understand is that you need your body to be human. Even to be made in the image of God is impossible without your body. That's why God designed us that way. So death, um, it's a real downer. And that's where I'm trying to get at. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that when we talk to folks after the passing of someone, because Jesus redeemed us, that sting of death has been removed. You understand? So we can give real comfort and say that person is with the Lord. And yet that's not our ultimate hope. What is our ultimate hope? The resurrection, which is why you saw it, you know, in our, if you came to our, the memorial service that we just did for Jim, it was in every one of the readings, you know, leading up to it, it's just a major part. That's our hope, because it's the restoration of what God designed us for. The point is that by Jesus remaining under the power of death, 
he has understood what that's like. He has experienced everything that you have experienced. He's gone through it, uh, you know, and so on. Um, just trying to be sure that I've read. Oh, I forgot to read under the previous one. Oh, how can I forget? Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, wrath of God. Um, for God has made him to be sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, there's the idea of Jesus taking on our, our wrath, our sin, even though he didn't deserve it. But here is this idea uh, of his also experiencing death. And I'll end it, because our time is just about up. Our, uh, I'll end simply by saying that you and I did not choose this. We are born into it, all of us. But Jesus did choose to do it. He did not have to do it. He chose to do it. So as we look at that question and we understand what it means by the humiliation, I hope this gives us an idea that he willingly chose to put himself into every one of these positions all so that he could redeem us and so that he could have us uh, uh, be part of that restoration. It's an amazing thing. Uh, Let me end with this. Um, We'll do it in, in about two minutes. If we look at that Ephesians, I'm sorry, that Philippians 2 passage again, um, and we read that line, let me flip back to it, but it's the emptied line. There's a lot of people who have misunderstood that. And um, verse 7 um, of chapter 2 of Philippians, uh, so verse 6, um, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, it says in the 2016 edition. And I have here made himself nothing. Uh, Emptied himself is the more traditional. So that tells me something. If in 2001, 2007, perhaps 2011, uh, the ESV had made himself nothing, but the traditional readings from King James or whatever would be emptied himself, and then these guys went back to emptied himself, it shows you that in 2001, they were not happy with emptied himself. They tried to clarify it. Um, let's see if we can just jump into that. What some people have done is that emptied himself. I don't, actually, I think the ESV's original translation is better. Some folks have called that the emptying of his nature, his divine nature. It's, uh, and if you want to know, there has a technical term. It's, um, and maybe you've heard this in a church, it's called the kenosis, just from the Greek word. Kenosis theory or kenosis doctrine. The idea that what happens at the incarnation is that Jesus empties himself of his divinity. And that's taught in a lot of schools, a lot of books, a lot of stuff. Some evangelicals have bought into it. Some will modify it and say, well, maybe not of his divinity, but of all his divine prerogatives and so on, uh, or he limits his power in some way. He's you know, got one hand tied behind his back or something of that nature. Um, and that really all comes from, and we don't have time to get too deep into it because it's its own lesson, but that all stems from a misunderstanding of this text. If you look at it, this idea of emptying himself or making himself nothing, does not actually say, look at it carefully. You all have it, looking at it, verse seven? But he made himself nothing, or let's use the word, but he emptied himself, how? What's the next line? By taking the form of a servant. When's the last time that you subtracted by adding? Right? Right? He makes himself nothing by adding the form of a servant. So what's actually happening here, the emptying, the canonic part here, does not mean that he's emptying himself of his divinity or of aspects of his divinity. But he, who had all these prerogatives, right, and and it has this thing, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the ticket right there to understanding. And you look at that verse and you say, what does that mean? Equality of God, a thing to be grasped. What did we do in the garden? Say again? That's right. Because we sat there and said, God is the lawgiver. I want to be the lawgiver. I want to say what's right and what's wrong. I want to grab a hold of Godhood. And Jesus, he's like, it's, 
I don't need to do that because I am God. So you see what Paul is getting at here. And actually, this is the so-called Christ hymn. More than likely, Paul didn't write this. This was part of a little confession or a little, uh, kind of like when we sing these small little, um, like the doxology or the Gloria Patri. This was probably something sung in the, in the early church because uh, it seems to have a poetic nature, or at least is recited. So maybe Paul didn't actually write it himself. Maybe he did. Um, but he's putting it in there. The language there is God didn't, uh, Jesus didn't have to grasp on to equality of God because he already had it. And yet he's willing to set aside the privileges of being the king of glory to humble himself by all these things without surrendering his nature, but by taking on the form of a servant. Once we see that, then the kenosis thing really falls away. Plus, it would have led to all sorts of contradictions that Jesus is now fully divine. Plus, one last thing, it wouldn't have solved the, it wouldn't have solved the, the mystery of the incarnation. There's a mysterious aspect to the, how God becomes man, how one human being, one person can have two... Uh, not one human being, but one person can have two natures, human and, and divine. That's mysterious. We can describe it. We can affirm it. It's true. We can't fully understand and comprehend it. Saying that he surrenders one part of his divinity or his entire divinity to become human still doesn't explain how one transfers and becomes the other. So you haven't solved anything. You gave up something and you didn't gain anything. So we'll stick to the more uh, um, true <laughs> understanding, which is the emptying means his giving up those, those privileges and so on by becoming a servant, having to suffer all this. Make sense? Okay, we really are out of time. Um, next week, we'll do the last one of these uh, for, the, for the period, for the cycle, and then we'll do coffee and questions in June. So that's where you get to define Sunday school. You bring your questions. But for now, um, if you have questions about this, I'm going to ask you to hang on to it because we're way, way past our time. Let me uh, pray and we'll, uh, we'll get ready for worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even as we have described what your son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, underwent, and we've put all these words up here, taking on human nature, uh, uh, born into a a mean or low condition, um, placing himself under the law and uh, suffering all the miseries of this life, uh, suffering your eternal and infinite wrath um, and ultimately death. We cannot fully comprehend what it means that Jesus was humbled when he set aside his prerogatives, not his nature, and he took on the form of a servant, uh, as Galatians 4, 4 says, born of a woman, born under law, in order to save those who were under the law. That's us. Without fully understanding it, we know that's what he came to do. And for that, we are eternally grateful. The fact that we are here, the fact that we have minds that have been regenerated so that we can understand and read the scripture is all a testament to what our Lord was able to do. And even if we never fully appreciate uh, the extent of it, in fact, we cannot without being him, uh, we can be thankful for it. Help us to uh, better understand, and especially as we go in next week, may it uh, illumine our understanding of his exaltation so that we can then Uh, See those two in contrast. And we pray this all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.